TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe, but our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications together right here on Outside the Walls. Every year, this is just a very interesting show for me because here we are on Holy Saturday. We've gone through uh, the most of the Triduum. We've experienced the, the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Thursday evening where Christ institutes both the Eucharist and the priesthood. We have gone through Good Friday where we remember the death, the suffering of our Lord for our sake. And here we sit on Saturday really trying in some way to capture the idea of what it means to be in a hopeless situation. Now, this is kind of hard with the faith because we know that we are not in a hopeless situation. We know we live on this side of the resurrection. And so we look at the cross and it's really easy for us to, to jump to Sunday, to jump right ahead to Easter. And, you know, the, the old phrase that you might have heard before, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, as if to say we're in the middle of darkness, but we know that we have hope in the resurrection. And so a lot of people want to rush there liturgically. They want to rush there in their own life because it's uncomfortable to sit in Holy Saturday. It's uncomfortable to sit in Good Friday for a couple of reasons. One, because it points out very clearly our need for a Savior. Christ died, but he died for us, for our sins. And so uh, if if we acknowledge his death, then we have to look at ourselves and say, he died for me. He died for this behavior that's in my life that I still don't have a handle on. He died for my ongoing sin, and and that requires something of me. You know, the the book of John talks about if we uh, belong to him, we don't sin anymore, and then, that's a really tall order because we look at our lives and we're like, oh, I'm not there yet. I still. I still choose to do what is wrong and fail to do what is right. And so uh, we look at this and we we feel the weight, if we allow ourselves, if we sit still long enough, we feel the weight of Holy Saturday. Because here we are still struggling with these things that put Christ on the cross. And to really sit with the idea of hopelessness is a frightening thing. And so I want to encourage you, sit in some silence. Maybe go visit a church today. Go go sit in a place uh, and realize that Christ has been taken out of the tabernacle, that the presence of Christ is not in that church in the manifest way that it is when the Eucharist is present. And feel the, the weight of that and recognize that, yes, God comes to us even in those moments of hopelessness. At the end of the show, we're going to talk a little bit more concretely about that as we look at the reading from Holy Saturday that we read every year. It comes out of the breviary. It's from a homily from the fourth century. And what, what strikes me about it this year is that Christ in, in that moment of hopelessness of Holy Saturday was accomplishing a great work. And so you and I, we, we look at uh, our own hopeless situations. And it's easy to think about hopelessness when we look at our own situation because we have that feeling from time to time. We feel like we have this thing that we're never going to get out of, this behavior, this uh, external situation that's been imposed upon us. And 
we look at it and and it feels to us in some way like a death, like a Holy Saturday death. And maybe it's an actual death of a loved one and you feel this hopelessness and wishing that it could be anything other than what you're experiencing. Well, in those moments, Christ wants to be present and he wants to do his good work. And maybe you have a hard time thinking of a hopeless situation in your life, in which case, praise be to God. Um, But one that popped up to me this week, and and I know that you've seen it, is the fire at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Um, Because here you have a worshiping congregation who watched really in hopelessness as, uh, as the fire raged through that beautiful historic building. And the crowd gathered uh, a safe distance away, and they knelt on the ground, and they sang a rosary together. And there's a video of that up on uh, really swept social media, swept YouTube, and it's this lovely version of a sung rosary by a discalced Carmelite brother, uh, Jean-Baptiste de la Sancta Familia. And it, it's really haunting. And so even there, as they watch uh, in helplessness, perhaps is a better word, uh, they still had hope. And their hope was in the communion of saints. Their hope was in their prayers. Their hope was in their faith. And in these moments where it would be easy to go to hopelessness, uh, rather, they turned themselves over to the mercy of God. They turned it into uh, really an exercise in abandonment, abandoning themselves to God the Father. Uh, I think of the the priest who ran into the burning building and saved the Eucharist. And uh, not only did he go in and rescue the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but he performed in the middle of this burning building, he did benediction, which is this, uh, this liturgy of blessing with the Eucharist. And he entrusted himself to the Father, and he entrusted, uh, he gave Christ the reverence that he was due in the Eucharist, even in the midst of this crisis situation. And I just look at that as a way of um, maybe a picture for us to say, when everything is going wrong, we still, we turn to Christ and we give him the homage that he's due. We abandon ourselves and, and our own ability to control the situation, because really we can't control it anyway. And we recognize that Christ is doing things that we can't see, even in the midst of hopelessness, even in the midst of helplessness. And in fact, sometimes that's the place where he does his very best work. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Tim Muldoon, who's the Director of Mission Education for Catholic Extension out in Chicago. It's going to be a fantastic conversation as we look at Notre Dame and what that tells us about sacred space, what that tells us about the need for uh, building up the church. Join me over on social media for a conversation at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Let's talk about what you saw, what you thought about during the fire at Notre Dame. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. 
And we are sitting here on Holy Saturday, kind of caught in the, um, the tension of Holy Week. We are experiencing the emptiness uh, and the, the lack and the loss of Christ. And even though we know full well that he's been resurrected, if you go into the church today, and I highly encourage that you do, even before the vigil, you're going to sense that emptiness as the, the, the sacred host has been removed from the tabernacle and all of the holy things have been removed from your sight. Everything's gone. It's been uh, reposed. It feels a little bit, uh, and, and of course, just a small taste in, in quite a less profound way, but it feels a little bit like those who have uh, Notre Dame as their cathedral, as their home parish, as they go in and they see the pictures that are up on Reuters and everywhere else, and they see the absence of all the things that they love, grateful for what's been maintained, but the absence of everything they love, there's this tension of Holy Week. And here we get to see a little bit of sense of we really do have an idea and a concept of sacred space. You know, a lot of times we like to hear the, the phrase, oh, we are the church. You know, look around the people in the pews, we are the church. And yet we, the, we're a both-and kind of people as Catholics. Yes, we are the body of Christ, but there is something particular about sacred space. And even as the people of, of Paris are experiencing that profoundly, there are people all around the country even today, who experience the loss of sacred space or, or watch it falling down around them as they're unable to pay for repairs or to expand into the buildings that they need. And so as, uh, as I kind of contemplated what we wanted to talk about today, I had the, the idea uh, that there is someone out there today. There's an organization within the Catholic uh, framework, an apostolate, that's whole mission is to support the church in places where they don't have the resources to do it themselves. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic organization that's been around for a very long time called Catholic Extension. And we're pleased today to talk with Dr. Timothy Muldoon, uh, who is the Director of Mission Education for Catholic Extension. Dr. Muldoon, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, too. I appreciate the opportunity. So for, for those who don't know, now uh, for all of my listeners in the Tulsa area, and this may be a surprise to you, but our Bishop Emeritus, Bishop Edward Slattery, worked for 20 years with Catholic Extension, first as the vice president, and then I think for 15 years as the president of Catholic Extension. Uh, and Catholic Extension has done a, a, just an immense amount of work in Tulsa, which is a missionary diocese. It's helped build buildings. Uh, that you, you hear each year about the Lumen Christi Awards. That comes from Catholic Extension. Uh, talk to Just give us a, a real quick primer. What is... Catholic Extension. I will do one more and say that there's another connection to the great state of Oklahoma, which is that our founder was Francis Clement Kelly back in 1905, and he later became the Bishop of Oklahoma City, which included Tulsa, of course. It, it, it did, time. yeah. There is that local connection uh, to make mention of. Catholic Extension is a papal society, which is to say that our charter comes directly from the Holy See. And it uh, was established, as I said, back in 1905, specifically for the purpose of reaching out and supporting the mission dioceses in the United States. And that is still our mission. And uh, it's been doing that ever since. Um, over that time, uh, and to your point, we have uh, built uh, something like 12,500 churches. And so bricks and mortar are very important to our mission because they obviously represent a place where the Catholic community comes together in worship. Uh, and while that's not the only extent of our mission, it's certainly an important part of it. So, so we think of ourselves 
as really supporting the church in the United States, particularly in those areas that are not self-supporting. So we try to bring people together to, uh, to really think of themselves as a, a church of an entire continent. Now, and let's talk about what this means, the church of an entire continent, because uh, those mission, you know, we talk about missionary dioceses or places where uh, the church is unable to support themselves. And we might have in our minds kind of like, oh, well, you know, the small little corner of the U.S. And that's simply not the case. Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, in terms of just sheer geography, we support something like three quarters of the country. Now, in terms of total population, we, we'd have to massage that a little bit. So it's about a quarter of the Catholic population in the United States is supported uh, by Catholic extension. Uh, and that's simply because there are still population centers in the big cities. So uh, so, but, but in, in terms of sheer numbers, um, 87 dioceses are considered mission dioceses and, that, and that's out of the 190 in the U S uh, including its territories, by the way. So we're also talking Puerto Rico, we're talking the Marianas Islands and others. Right. Um, but, but, you know, a significant part of, uh, the United States is supported by Catholic extension. Now you support the brick and mortar, but you do, you do more than this. You support the programming and the initiatives as well. So for instance, uh, I know of a place that uh, in order to have ministry for youth and young adults, they they needed uh, extra funding. And so the Catholic Extension came in and provided scholarships for that person to be able to really kind of host a diocesan office, which benefited the whole particular church. Yeah, that's that's certainly right. And, and that's been our modus operandi for uh, the last number of years. So moving beyond just the bricks and mortar, as, as you said, our understanding, of course, is, is that the church... Uh, is ultimately its people, and and we'll have to return to that that idea. Um, you know, as as we think about uh, Notre Dame in, in Paris, the church is its people, and and so obviously, while houses of worship are important, ultimately we're talking about the building of the people of God, the building of the of the church, you know, writ large. And so, obviously, that means investing in uh, people, leaders in particular. So you mentioned young adult leaders. We have a great program that trains young adult leaders at uh, some of the finest Catholic universities in the country before they return to their home diocese to lead. We do the same with uh, Hispanic lay leaders who obviously constitute a very important uh, segment of our Catholic population in the United States. Uh, We support seminarians in in many dioceses as they continue their education, their training for the priesthood. Uh, We support religious sisters throughout the country. So there are many, many ways that we try to really provide avenues for growth in the leadership of both this generation and the coming generations of our church. We're talking today with Dr. Tim Muldoon, the Director of Mission Education for Catholic Extension. And so let's return back now to the theological side. uh, You talked about building the church in the people, and you also build the church in brick and mortar. It draws to mind uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who uh, was sitting in a ruined church, a chapel that was falling down around his ears, a lot like the Cathedral of Notre Dame was. Uh, and and he is contemplating the cross, and he's at a crossroads in his life, and he hears the call of God come out from the San Damiano crucifix, Francis, arise and rebuild my church. And he takes it in a very pragmatic, hey, I've got something to do. He's a doer kind of a guy. And he goes and actually literally physically by himself goes and even begs the stone to go and rebuild this this little uh, chapel, 
And of course, this is part of it. And I think part of that exercise of rebuilding the brick and mortar allows him to see that there is a larger component. Uh, And returning back to Notre Dame, we look at the secularization of France in general. We see that, you know, it's like the the building, the, the cathedral is operated as a cathedral, but it's owned by the government. And the government, because of the separation of church and state, does not do the repairs on it. So it's a little bit of an interesting situation there. And so here you have uh, these people who are in a building that's falling down around their ears, but they also have a society that has largely ignored or or gone away from um, the faith. And so even as, and and I I think right now my prayer in this whole situation overseas is a prayer to St. Francis of Assisi, that as they rebuild the exterior, that the interior will be rebuilt as well. And I, I think of these dioceses around the U.S. who don't have the resources to expand or to build uh, properly or to uh, to just have the infrastructure in, in in place to rebuild the church, both in a brick and mortar and in a um, a spiritual sense. And I look at how this crisis has caused people to just realize the importance of, of donating to this. And I just want to say to everyone, listen, they have raised over 500, no, $600 million. Over half a billion dollars is already dedicated to Notre Dame. It's going to be fine. They're going to, they're going to rebuild it. It's going to be fine. But you know what? Take that passion and realize that we're one church, right? And, and donate that to Catholic Extension, who's doing that very same work right here at home. Yeah, thank you for making that connection, TL. I, I think that's a great point to make. You started by talking about St. Francis, and uh, he's he's certainly one of our patrons. We have a Spirit of Francis Award that we regularly give that calls to mind uh, that particular image of rebuilding the church, uh, but it also calls to mind our, our founder, uh, Francis Clement Kelly, and, and most recently, of course, Pope Francis. Um, these were all men that were very concerned with the life of the church and rebuilding the church, as, as you point out. Uh, this is a moment that you can't help but, you know, see the metaphorical significance. You know, a burning church. I mean, that's just, you know, you can't make a, a more profound image. Uh, but something that's, I think, helpful to call to mind, and this is why uh, St. Francis is, is a good model, um, Notre Dame de, de, de Paris is a is a church that has been rebuilt many many times, and and like all of the great churches of Europe, um, I, I heard one historian uh, describe it as a palimpsest, which is a great word. Uh, a palimpsest is a manuscript that has been written on and then kind of wiped clean, written on again, wiped clean, written on again. Uh, so in describing this cathedral as a palimpsest. Uh, this historian was was trying to suggest that look, it's it's yes, it's in stone, but it's certainly not static. It has not always been the same thing. Uh, it's interesting to remember, for example, that in the 18th century, it was rededicated as a shrine to reason. It was you know this was after the the French Revolution, and uh, you know it was they tried to remove the Catholic character altogether and de- dedicate it as a shrine to reason. So so this you know it's an 800 year old structure, but. It's not a structure that has never undergone change. So I, I think, you know, your point about, you know, this being this, this moment of great kind of metaphorical significance is, is well taken. 
uh, Notre Dame needs to be rebuilt. Heck, our church always needs to re- be rebuilt. Um, you know, this is, I'm, I'm thinking of the great words of uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman, um, you know, who's uh, on the road to sainthood. And, and he said to, to live is to change and to live long is to have changed often. And I think that's a great, you know, image, not only for us as individuals uh, growing in faith, but for the church as a whole. Uh, and so you're certainly right. The church will be rebuilt. You know, the, the cathedral will be rebuilt. Um, but more broadly, the church, the church, large C, is always being rebuilt. So yes, Notre Dame will be a beautiful church once again. Uh, and and for our purposes at Catholic Extension, you know, the metaphor carries that, yes, we build churches, but we certainly want to build the faith throughout the United States because we believe that it has a culture-shaping um, capacity. It has the capacity to change lives. And we love telling those stories because we see them all the time. Mm-hmm. We're talking today with Dr. Tim Muldoon, uh, pastoral theologian, author of a number of books, but most importantly for our purposes today, Director of Mission Education at Catholic Extension. You can find more information about them by going to catholicextension.org over on Facebook, facebook.com slash catholicextension. And forever the Twitter problem, Twitter slash Extension because they don't let us have long enough usernames. Follow them on social media, sign up for their email newsletters, and keep up with the good work that they're doing. Remember, supporting them supports the church in missionary dioceses around the United States. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's much more to come in this conversation right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. So what are the implications? We, we, we're talking about the implications of our belief on daily life. Well, let's, let's look at those. The implication of the belief that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist means that we, we have a sacred place. We have a place in a temple that we come to offer that sacrifice, just as they did in the Old Testament. Remember, on on uh, Holy Thursday, when Jesus is sitting down with the apostles and he tells them, uh, do this in memory of me, that word memory there, anamnesis, is talking about making present a memory, uh, very similar to what they would have experienced in the Passover, which was the meal they were celebrating, right? Uh, the Passover meal was not one where they remembered what God did, but that they made it present right then. It's not, oh, remember that God delivered the people. He says, remember when God delivered us here around this table, there is a very real sense that as he told them, do this in memory of me, or, or uh, maybe a loose translation would be, offer this memorial sacrifice for me. As they understood that, they also understood that a sacrifice needs a priesthood, and a priesthood needs a place to do that sacrifice. And so built into this understanding of of the Eucharist and this belief that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity— means that we have to have an appropriate place, a sacred place, that we don't just gather in a box. We actually are, are gathering in this, uh, I think the writer of Hebrews calls it a shadow of heavenly worship, uh, is the old tabernacle. And so now we're entering into maybe a closer shadow of that heavenly worship in our local parish. And so um, 
the, we're talking today with Dr. Tim Muldoon, who is the director of mission education at Catholic Extension, and they are an organization that helps the church around the country to build the church both in its sacred spaces and in its mission and and direction and infrastructure so that it can do the work of the church uh, in a profound way in their local communities. Dr. Muldoon, thanks for joining us today. Great again. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that I'm struck by as we look at the, um, the, the Notre Dame de Paris fire, to Perry, right? I got to say it all right, correctly. <laughs> we, we, we all laugh at people who say words in, like in, in Kentucky. When I lived in Kentucky, there was Versailles, Kentucky. And everyone laughs at them because they don't call it Versailles. And yet we call it Paris, and that's not at all how they pronounce it. So um, we should all be the subject of ridicule, but we, we, we never, nevertheless. So as, as I think of this Notre Dame Cathedral and, and all that's happened and, and the sadness that, that is involved in, in that fire, um, a couple of things stand out to me. One, I'm, I'm just amazed at the craftsmanship of how much was able to be preserved because of the way uh, the medieval builders built that stone vault around the building. But the other thing is this. Um, the church, everyone says the church is irrelevant until someone elects a pope or there's a tragedy of this scale in a sacred space. And here, in Holy Week of 2019, we have on the front page of every news source around the, uh, the world the proof uh, of the physical historical account of Christ's crucifixion. The crown of thorns, a thorn from the crown of thorns was saved, and its picture is put up all over the news. The, a piece of the true cross, with the largest piece of the true cross, or a large piece, rather, was, was saved, and it's, it's in the pictures. And, and one of the nails that pierced his hands or his feet is on display, and we're like, hey, it's Holy Week. It's the holiest time of the year when we recognize that Christ was sacrificed for us, and here are the relics of his crucifixion. Let's show you the whole world on the news. It's a striking image. I mean, who would have thought even, you know, a week ago that on the front page of these newspapers, there would be a picture of a thorn from the crown of thorns. I mean, this is just, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Um, If nothing else, it's obviously a reminder of the profound historicity of our faith. It's it's rooted in a concrete person at a concrete time. I, I think of the beginning of Luke's gospel when he's saying, this is when it happened. You know, it was, it was during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. You know, it, this, is, this is not just an abstraction. Um, you know, and, and to your point, there's, there's physical stuff, but there's also physical places, you know, and, and, and so those places are, are very important to us uh, because they mark out something of what we are concretely remembering. I mean, if there's a secular equivalent, it would be something like maybe Graceland, you know, where there's, oh yes, somebody actually lived here. You know, there was something that happened in this exact place. I mean, there's something that appeals to us, you know, just as, as, as human beings to connect to history. And certainly the cathedral does that. This 850 year old building connects us to a history. And of course then, you know, to the story of Christ with, with that relic uh, and even longer history. But, you know, there's a, there's a deeper point here as well. We believe in a God that has created the whole world. So why does this particular place have any more significance than any other place? Well, because of the story that we carry with us. So our, you know, our word tradition gets at that, traditio, something that's handed on to us. 
Um, the, the, the cathedral, and, and frankly, every church is a place where something is handed on, the way that Paul talks about handing on what was given to him about the Last Supper, for example. Uh, we mark out sacred spaces because they're places of memory, but they're also places, as you pointed out, where we kind of relive what we remember. So yes, anamnesis in, in Greek, that sense of being in that place once again, just as our Jewish brothers and sisters relive the Passover. So we relive the Last Supper. And obviously that's something that's very much on our minds on a Holy Saturday. So those places are important. They're not everything to us, but they are certainly important to us because of that profound connection to that very concrete story and those very concrete um, articles of remembrance of that story. And speaking of this set in a place in time and a specific culture, a specific place, a specific reality. Um, this is, this is the reason that the faith is as astringent as it is about certain things. For instance, um, there was a, a recent dust up about whether or not, uh, another place in the world was going to use, uh, yucca as part of their Eucharist <clears throat> because, you know, bread didn't work very well where they were, and yet we are a, a faith that is grounded in a particular place, uh, and so that particular place is is important. And of course, the church said, you know, that's really not on the docket. I know that that person suggested it, but that's that's not something that's even going to be discussed. So we're not going to speak to it. At the same time, there was a um, a discussion at some point in the history of, well, there are other parts of the world where. Um, December is not winter. And so maybe it would be better to move the date of Christmas for those people to better symbolize um, the, uh, what would be Christmas for them. Uh, and the church said no, because it happened in a real specific time and a specific place. And so we're going to hold to that specific time and specific place because there is a particularity to, um, to the faith. It's not an abstraction. We're not just going for the best, uh, um, th thought process, the best idea that conveys the message or the philosophy behind it, we're going to remember the actual events. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So, uh, and, and just to build on that same logic, uh, obviously we are talking about, you know, very concrete historical details. Um, actually, one thought that comes to mind, you know, there are obviously many people nowadays that are gluten-free and so they can't actually consume um, a, a, consecrated host. My wife is one, you know, yeah. so, but, but, you know, the same logic applies, you know, there are now gluten-free hosts that still have a trace of wheat in them, the, the smallest trace of, of wheat because of that, you know, logic that we can't just, we can't go fully in the direction of it's only a metaphor. It's not only a metaphor. It's, it is a remembrance of a historical event. And, and therefore we want to retain that, that very specific direct connection to the historical event. But again, ours is a sacramental church. And so we, we certainly um, recognize that something profound unfolds in the context of a church, a bricks and mortar church, and something profound uh, transpires on the altar. But at no time do we say that the mystery is reducible to those things. We say they're very much invested with meaning, you know, and so they're, and in fact, irreplaceable meaning. And I think even, you know, those that are stepping forward with funds to rebuild the cathedral understand something of the irreplaceable meaning that, that, you know, transpires there. 
But at the end of the day, we're, we're looking at things through the lens of salvation history, and, and everything is oriented ultimately towards what is God doing in our midst and how does God bring about ultimately our salvation. So the way that I, I had um, uh, it heard way back years ago, a, a professor of mine, he had talked about the fact that we never talk about sacraments being, oh, it's just this, it's just bread, it's just wine, or, or the church is, oh, it's just a church. But at the same time, we don't say it's only this. It's only, you know, it's that this is the, the you know, the summit of, of what our faith teaches us. Sacraments are profoundly endowed with meaning, but ultimately they ought to bring us closer to God and, and to, uh, to our salvation. Well, and to be very clear, there's a day coming. There's a day in history in the eschaton that's coming where we will no longer have the sacraments because the sacraments are pointing us to and connecting us to something that is uh, promised and that is deeper. And so as, as important as the sacraments are, they are not eternal. That's right. That's right. And, and it's kind of a medieval adage. Sacraments are for people. So yes, in the eschaton, there's no need for sacraments. The, the, the shadows fall away. We see through a glass darkly is Paul's language. Um, the sacraments fall away, but, but for us in this time, and, and the same logic extends to sacramentals, of course, not just the seventh sacrament, but to the sacramentals, which are, you know, those things which also are bearers of meaning. And, and, and I think, you know, the same logic would apply to a church building, which is, again, I think why people understand that, that uh, church buildings are, are so important. They're endowed with meaning, but they are, they are as it were, um, carriers of meaning ultimately toward um, our final salvation. So as we are human beings, as we are people, we want to support uh, people uh, and their churches and their worship and their community. Certainly that's been part of Catholic Extension's mission from the beginning. Uh, but we also understand that in the end, we are a pilgrim people moving towards um, our, our final salvation through Christ. You know, there's this the fantastic book from 1945 called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. And in the beginning of that book, um, they're meeting in mass in a fish market. And towards the middle of the book, they're finally able to build a, um, a, a church building. And at the end of that book, some catastrophe happens and they lose the building. And the, the message of hope is that they're the, the last scene, they're back in the fish market, but they're with the hope of the future, with the hope of rebuilding that building again. If you've not read that book, uh, it's a fantastic book. Uh, and you can find it on Amazon, The World, The Flesh, and Father Smith by Bruce Marshall. Um, in the last minute that we have here, those people who are so moved by the tragedy at Notre Dame and they feel a need to give, uh, Notre Dame has enough. Don't give any more there. They're going to rebuild. It's going to be spectacular. But Catholic Extension is doing that work right now today. Uh, how would they donate? Well, they can go to catholicextension.org uh, and help us. And even if they want to designate, I want to help build churches, knowing that churches can be the center of a community. Uh, and we have a lot of ways to, uh, to share stories with them. They can sign up for our magazine, for our newsletter. Uh, they can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, but we'd love to have them uh, share our mission, which is driven entirely by grants and donations. All right. We've been talking today with Dr. Tim Muldoon, the Director of Mission Education at Catholic Extension. There's more to this conversation available to those who support the show through Patreon. We're going to be talking about Catholic Extension's role in the life of Father Stanley Rother. Uh, it's a conversation worth hearing. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's much more to come right after this. 
You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We've been talking today with Dr. Tim Muldoon. He's the director of mission education at uh, at Catholic Extension Society out of Chicago, Illinois. They they provide for the church specifically in missionary dioceses, uh, supporting the work they do both with physical buildings and with uh, with supporting their programs, supporting seminarians, and so much more. Uh, please go over to catholicextension.org and take a look at their good work. If you missed any part of that discussion or you want to share it with your friends, have no fear. Uh, that episode is archived along with all our other shows over at outsidethewalls.com. And there's more to my conversation with Dr. Muldoon, normally available to those who support the show through Patreon, but this week's extra segment is so good that I want you to be able to listen to it as well. So I've got that linked over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. You can also find it by going to our website, outsidethewalls.com, and clicking that support the show link up in the right-hand corner. If uh, if you enjoy that episode, well, we have extra segments every single week with our guest in gratitude for those who help keep us on the air. For as little as $5 a month, uh, those people forgo one cup of coffee a month and they get four or five extra segments each and every month with uh, with insight, further insight from our guests. So I want to invite you to become a part of that community. But regardless, I want you to go this week uh, and listen to that extra segment where we talk about Catholic Extension's involvement with Blessed Stanley Rother, both uh, when he was seeking to be a priest and uh, after the fact, now as his shrine is being built. And that extra segment is the free gift to everyone this week. Go take a listen. Let's go ahead and turn our attention now to our reading from Scripture and from church history. Our reading from Scripture today comes from yesterday's uh, lectionary, from the, the veneration of the cross. Uh, the reason for that is today's Mass, the only Mass that's going on, is the Easter Vigil, uh, which recounts the whole story of salvation history and, and is really concerned with uh, how we came to fall and how we came to be saved. Uh, but today, the, the direction of the show is looking more at this concept of abandonment, of feeling helpless, of, uh, of really the role of suffering in our lives. And I thought as we do that, perhaps what we should do is the reading from yesterday, which explores the purpose and the role of suffering in the life of Christ. So this reading comes from the book of Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has similarly been tested in every way, yet without sin. So let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. In the days when Christ was in the flesh, he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all 
who obey him. That reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. And as I look at that, this has been a really profound scripture for my life. There was a period of my life when I was enduring suffering, and I thought, well, I need a word from God. I'm going to open up the Bible. I'm going to ask God where he wants me to read because that's uh, the, the state I was in. And I heard very clearly uh, Hebrews 5.8. And so, all right, I was really excited. I heard the voice of God, and there I went, and it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And it was not a, a verse that I wanted to hear at all, but it's one that's been very effective in my life because in those moments of suffering, when I relinquish control and I simply choose to obey, in those moments, Christ does his most powerful work. In those prayers of self-abandonment, God not only changes the situations that are around us, but he also changes the hearts that are within us. And we who pass through moments of suffering and death find ourselves living the realities of resurrection when we turn ourselves completely over to God. And I pray uh, in a very specific way for the people of France who have gone through this death, through this fire in their, their beautiful cathedral, which has become kind of a national symbol for them, even those who are not religious. And I pray that this fire will be a cause of renewed fervor for the people of France, for, for the Catholic Church in France. There have been those in the midst of this fire who have given such a beautiful and profound witness to the faith, who have gathered together in prayer and song and had that prayer and song splashed across international news media. Uh, there have been the, the heroic actions of the fire brigade uh, chaplain who went in and proposed the Blessed Sacrament and uh, gave this, again, this witness to the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Here in Holy Week, we see the, the pictures of the crown of, of the thorn from the crown of thorns and a piece of the true cross uh, that are being displayed on international news across the world. And I pray that through this destruction, through this hopeless, quote-unquote, situation, uh, that Christ will again do his best work. And that brings us to our reading from church history today, which, as we do at every Holy Saturday, comes from an ancient homily uh, from an anonymous source on Holy Saturday. And this year, I, I, as I read it, I, I looked at it a little bit differently. I looked at it from this idea of in the midst of suffering, God is doing his best work in us and in the world around us. And I looked at this from the perspective of the apostles who they recognize the absence of Christ, him who they loved. They recognize that he's not with them and that all of their hopes were dashed. And yet as their hopes were dashed, the hopes of many others, uh, both that preceded them and that followed them, were being ignited by the work of Christ. And so this reading comes from an ancient homily on Holy Saturday. Something strange is happening. There is a great silence on earth today, a great silence and stillness. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. God has died in the flesh, and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parent, as for a lost sheep, greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death. He has gone to free from sorrow the captives, Adam and Eve, he who is both God 
and the son of Eve. The Lord approached them bearing the cross, the weapon that had won him the victory. At the sight of him, Adam, the first man he had created, struck his breast in terror and cried out to everyone, My Lord be with you all. And Christ answered him, And with your spirit. He took him by the hand and raised him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. I am your God who for your sake have become your son. Out of love for you and for your descendants, I now by my own authority command all who are held in bondage to come forth, all who are in darkness to be enlightened, all who are sleeping to arise. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be held a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. Rise up, work of my hands, you who were created in my image. Rise, let us leave this place, for you are in me and I am in you. Together we form only one person and we cannot be separated. For your sake I, your God, became your son. I, the Lord, took the form of a slave. I, whose home is above the heavens, descended to the earth and beneath the earth. For your sake, for the sake of man, I became like a man without help, free among the dead. For the sake of you who left a garden, I was betrayed to the Jews in a garden, and I was crucified in a garden. See on my face the spittle I received in order to restore to you the life I once breathed into you. See there the marks of the blows I received in order to refashion your warped nature in my image. On my back, see the marks of the scourging I endured to remove the burden of sin that weighs upon your back. See my hands nailed firmly to a tree for you who once wickedly stretched out your hand to a tree. I slept on the cross and a sword pierced my side for you who slept in paradise and brought forth Eve from your side. My side has healed the pain in yours. My sleep will rouse you from your sleep in hell. The sword that pierced me has sheathed the sword that was turned against you. Rise, let us leave this place. The enemy led you out of the earthly paradise. I will not restore you to that paradise, but I will enthrone you in heaven. I forbade you the tree that was only a symbol of life, but see, I who am life itself am now one with you. I appointed cherubim to guard you as slaves are guarded, but now I make them worship you as God. The throne formed by cherubim awaits you, its bearers swift and eager. The bridal chamber is adorned. The banquet is ready. The eternal dwelling places are prepared. The treasure houses of all good things lie open. The kingdom of heaven has been prepared for you from all eternity. That reading comes from a Holy Saturday homily from the 4th century. And that's all the time we have for today. But in your hopelessness, know that God is doing his best work if you'll simply abandon yourself to his providence. That's all the time we have for this week. Today's show is brought to you by Kent Keithley and all those who support the show through Patreon. Make sure to listen to that extra segment available to everyone this week over at OutsideTheWalls.com under that Patreon link. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.